Okay. <laughs> Mitch is feeling it. I can tell. I'm trying, man. Like, how is this Tuesday? Coincidentally, today is the day after Monday, so they've after chosen, every Monday. Yeah. There's usually a Tuesday. I can't think of an exception. There's a Tuesday right after. You yeah. can't prove that yeah. for the last like four months. <laughs> I have to back Mitch on this, Craig. <laughs> this is beers with house. Dress, beers, and Welcome or welcome back. This is episode 88 of Beers with Talos. Today is July 7th, 2020. I am joined as usual by Craig, Matt, and Joel. Nigel is not with us today. He's playing hooky. No, Nigel is playing hooky. He is uh, apparently, according to the run sheet, exploring sites for his future bunker. I mean, that sounds like something Nigel would do, let's be honest. I mean, I think he probably is like exploring bunkers he owns, trying to pick his favorite. <laughs> so we're going to start today off the same way we start off every episode. And Craig, you're top left on my screen. So you're up first. What's on your mind today, buddy? I think we've had a lot of stuff going on. And I, I did just want to talk about this vulnerability that popped out over the weekend. Um, it's one of those vulnerabilities that came out and almost immediately had um, exploit code surface. And I think that'll lead us into some of our later discussion today. But the reason I wanted to mention it is because it's, it's one of those situations where a vulnerability that comes out, and to some people, it seems obvious. And I want to be completely transparent here. Like working at Cisco, we've made mistakes, right? I think any large vendor will say we've made mistakes. We've had bugs come out that as a security team we look at and we just think, man, you know, we've got. Oh, we yeah, should have done yeah. that. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> like, we've got some room for improvement, folks. Um, and, and so, I, I just yeah. wanted to kind of say that that happens to every vendor, right? Um, and so, you know, as users, as customers of the various vendors, you know, please understand that when these come out, I think I speak for most security teams out there saying that we are working behind the scenes to try and prevent this low hanging fruit from happening. It's why we have product security baselines, it's why we have entire teams, entire departments dedicated towards minimizing these. But don't think anyone's immune. You know, your favorite vendor is going to have issues that, you know, in retrospect should never have happened. And all we can do is work towards minimizing that and make sure that they get patched as quickly as possible. Joel, you're up next, buddy. What's on your mind today? Oh, man. Um, what's on my mind? I'm... Uh... I'm uh, counting down the days until they put plaster in my pool and then they can fill it full of water and I can swim in it. That's pretty much what's on my mind. Matt, how you doing today, man? I am, uh, I'm getting older. Yeah. I, I'm in my mid forties. And so I, I know that there will be a time very shortly where I will start looking uh, wistfully to the past, to the good old days. So I've been doing some research trying to figure out when the good old days were <laughs> and trying to narrow down. So what I decided is I'm going to start trying to bracket in the good old days. Like this isn't something I can do in, in one day. But I decided that the good old days couldn't have taken place before October 31st, 1975 because that was the release date of Bohemian Rhapsody. And you can't have right. good old days without Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, but I'm fair. also certain that they did occur prior to March 21st, 2006, which was the founding of Twitter. So it definitely happened after <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody, yeah. but before Twitter. So I'm just going to spend the next couple of months like <laughs> trying to like shave down so that when I'm telling my kids that 
it was the good old days. Like we would tell them what day in specific. What day? Yeah, yeah. yeah it was April twenty second. Yep, nineteen ninety. That's what I'm working yeah, on. Uh, yeah, right. That's what I'm working on yeah. right now. That's my big project. Wasn't ninety eight? So like, wait, that, I, can I help? Can I help with this? Yeah, can yeah. we? Can we? I, and I would. Uh, any, are we before or after Kurt Cobain's death? Like that? That was uh, we gotta, ninety. We got to think about it. Yeah, we got to think about all these. Was like what ninety four? No. Yeah, I'm trying to think of another upper bound for like that's below. Twitter for that upper yeah. bracket there, so I'm I'm kind of working backward from there. September 11th, <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, they had to have happened before that's that. A, that's some low hanging fruit there. Yeah, oh yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like let's let's take the big ones and chunk yeah, off. You just ends, you just, right? you just axed a decade. Listen, guys, 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 we're all we're all roughly in the same age group here, uh, and I think we can all widely agree that the the good old days were obviously the 90s. I mean, that has to that we have to like start with that is. <laughs> I in, would probably agree with that, that is in yeah. the good old days. Wait, so, so you mean it has to be outside we were, of that? When we were in our teens, was the good old days? Because I notice a pattern here when people talk about good old days. <laughs> yeah, it's before they could be charged with a felony. Yes, That's exactly. what the good old days <laughs> Teens and 20s. Before yeah. you could be tried as an adult is always. Well, it was definitely after 78 because, you know, neither Mitch nor I was born yet. So. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess you could attempt to make that argument. Yeah. Shit didn't get good till after I was shut up. So we. <laughs> <laughs> that that might be the most Joel thing that is like that might That's be the summary of Joel. all of Joel's commentary on yeah. the podcast ever. It can be summed up with "shit didn't get good until I showed up." <laughs> so I had <laughs> hashtag. <sighs> I bring the party. So we we have a couple things that we want to talk about today. There in the last couple few episodes, uh, one topic has come up a couple times, just even in passing and from different angles. And and we've we've brushed around the topic of what happens when zero day uh, exploits hit offensive security platforms. And then we want to preview uh, a big piece of research that we have coming out. And we'll let Matt take the lead on that. We'll talk a little bit about election security to, to wrap up the show today. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Stop. All right. Are you, are you wanting to say what happens when exploits slash zero days hit offensive security platforms? I, I should have said pen testing tools. That may have been. Yeah. That may have been. Okay. Well, I'll hold my commentary for the discussion. I'm sorry. I just wanted to make sure that we were saying the right thing. No, it makes sense. Good question. Let's talk a little bit about uh, some of those terms and, and what we mean there then. And we have been yelled at for like not defining things. We have. So we'll let Joel define it then. No, I, no. Yeah. Zero day, uh, vulner, you know, vulnerability or an attack. I guess it's an it's attack be an against attack, a vulnerability. Yeah. yeah. An attack against a vulnerability of which there is no publicly. Yeah, so for example, you know, if you've got a fully patched windows machine, uh, you know, and you're sitting there on the internet without a firewall, cause you, you know, have some sort of, Disability, because you're brain, yeah, some sort of yeah, disability yeah. affecting your thought process, uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, somebody <laughs> shoots a certain set of packets that are malformed to your box, and maybe let's say the TCP fragmentation stack has an error, and you're able to spray data into the heap and trigger, you know, a heap overflow and get code execution through like a ROB technique, like Matt mentioned last time. That would be a zero-day exploit that's successful against the patched vo- version of Windows, meaning there's you know an unpatched vulnerability that no one's aware of, publicly at least, uh, in Windows. And so that, as an, a defensive player, is the worst-case scenario. Um, but 
you know, the reason I think it's more important now than ever before is because previously, and by previously, I mean 10 years ago, these type of things were exceedingly rare and it was, you know, you would see them, but more often than not, you saw them almost as novelties, right? People would use them to effectively grief systems. Occasionally there would be a worm that just replicated and spun out of control. And again, griefing, um, but now countries, I don't want to say hoard, but basically collect these for national security purposes um, to monitor and put implants on targets, right? And so these are gathered in mass and collected by governments all over the world for different purposes. And so depending on what role you have on the internet and as a company, you can be a target for some very uh, unknown and well-organized attacks. Now, for most users, this is not something you would normally see. You know, for 99.9% of users, I'd guess, you're never going to see these, right? Instead, what you're going to have happen is you don't patch, and then three weeks later, uh, an exploit ends up in a pen testing framework like the Metasploit framework, and, you know, 12 low-level attackers copy enough of that to get their code to work, and then all of a sudden, you're going to get hit by a piece of malware. So two completely different attack scenarios. One is taking advantage of a zero-day vulnerability, and the other is taking advantage of a known vulnerability, uh, and that's much more for commercial purposes than like national security purposes, and it's incredibly more common. And it's also easier to defend against because it's known at the time. There's more often than not patches available, uh, but you know, as Matt has said a lot of the time, saying just patch is not an enterprise solution, right? It's not always feasible. I feel like that was like the long way around the barn. <laughs> <laughs> he took, he took Mitch's word and tried to carry the whole thing himself. Yeah, so, I mean, I got you. Boo. So I, Don't worry. I, I, I understand what you, I understand what you were going with and, and I, and I agree. It's, I understand. I saw through your words. Um, you know, I think it's, it's basically you're kind of pointing out the difference between a true zero day, something that is completely unknown and is used by state-sponsored APT type actors, comma ones that are weaponized within a more, uh, I mean, uh, publicly accessible framework. I may be stupid, but last time I checked, you weren't. I can't so. think of an example of an O day that was in like core or canvas or uh, metasploit there. I think there were probably some in metasploit years and years and years ago before it was such a monetized thing before it was so commercial. Yeah. I bet some, yeah. I mean, I'm, I guarantee you that some were built in metasploit, but not in the sense that it was in the metasploit core framework that was easily available. Like I'm sure that's that, that I know that some exploit dev happens on that platform. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. so obviously it's possible that during, during ex like, like vulnerability development that it was, but to the specific question, what happens when O'Day hits offense, offensive security platforms? I, I don't think it does. Yeah. I it, as a matter of fact, I would say it is so vanishingly rare, even if I'm wrong, that I wouldn't worry about it as a CISO. <laughs> yeah. I think, right. right. It, 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 yeah, I think I think it's um, the 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 release of an exploit in a framework. I mean, there's uh, let's set aside the ethical 
ramifications of releasing an exploit that is you know mass accessible to everybody who hasn't patched. But I think I think that's why we defined O'Day up front, right? Because O'Day to us means something very specific, but in marketing terms, O'Day means essentially you know something that's not patched. Yeah, it means something is not patched, right? And so like if you you know WannaCry used an O'Day and I put that in quotes. And what I mean by that is it, it, it was an O-Day to the people that didn't patch. The patch was available, but you didn't patch. I, 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 right? reject, so, I reject in full what you're saying. Yeah. Without, oh, yeah, without absolutely. Caveat. I, 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 I reject caveat. what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that's... <laughs> Sorry, I was going to say, I think the more common one, and Matt, this is to kind of fill in your point a second ago, is when um, there is no exploit, but an issue is public. And, you know, a lot of the time, mm-hmm. I would say 60% of the yeah. time, at least, it's because a vendor says that this issue is not believed to be exploitable. Uh, and they use that to downgrade Ooh. the CVSS score. Uh, and, you know, the result of that is every exploit writer sees that as a personal challenge. Uh, and I, I have been in, in the IRC rooms watching people develop this code. And I'll be honest, you know, as somebody involved in defense, I am glad they're doing that because I know for damn sure our adversaries are doing it. And so if it is exploitable, and I'm going to assume it is more often than not, I want to know the severity of it. I want to know how hard it is to exploit. And is there anything we can look for that's going to happen during exploitation? Um, So I think most of the time when people say, oh, it's got a zero day, they don't actually mean a zero day. They mean that something that hasn't had an exploit yet, and there is a patch, now has an exploit. And they just confuse the term because they don't know any better. Yeah, that's what I mean, is the confusion and the loose... The loose stretching of that term, and that's why we do. We all- still wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it is still incorrect. I would be interested in having an intern because this particular topic, and here's why. I see your, yeah, your, your I know where you're going. This particular yeah. topic is soaked in history, like absolutely yeah. Yeah. soaked in history, in arguments, in. Arguments, both good faith and bad faith, in vendor malfeasance, mm-hmm. in in questionable behavior by the security community, like there are a thousand kind of like stories um, about patching exploits, metasploit, core canvas, whatever um, that that are that kind of go in because right now one of the reasons I think we're taking we're talking about this, if I were guessing, is that it is. Uh, July 7th, and so four days ago, F5 announced that there was a push to patch, and there was exploit code almost immediately for this patch. Um, and I think uh-huh. to, to, to some of what Craig was saying in, in his opener, it was, it was trivial to exploit um, in terms of, of, of getting, getting what you wanted done. Um, and so it would be good to, to have a less experienced um, but thoughtful person explain how they approach these concepts. Because Mm -hmm. for us, it has been, because like, for example, recently there's been a lot of arguments about whether or not there should even be exploit code, whether or not you should have offensive tools. And we lived through an era where, uh, and and like lived through, like worked in this industry in in an era when companies were reluctant to put out patches Companies were reluctant mm-hmm. to put out information. Companies Not the good out, old days. 
Yeah, no, this would yeah, not the good days. <laughs> they would they would put out um, security patches in feature patches and not actually explain that there was a a a very bad security flaw that was that was patched in there. Um, mm-hmm. There there would be um, CISOs and defenders who wouldn't patch unless um, they wanted thirty days to patch because they had to test their systems. And they wouldn't patch unless it was proven that it was ex- an exploitable. Um, we had vendors saying we're going to patch this out of abundance of caution, but we don't think it's exploitable. Back to Craig's point, um, there was this whole era, like a series of like just just having to go through and and, and mature as an industry, where you're like, to Craig's point, you ha- like if you code, you will have bugs. If you have bugs, you will have security issues. If you have security issues, mm-hmm. you need to publish patches. If you publish patches, you have to say why they're important. So people like we know this now, and so when I see people have discussions about this, I, I would rather have a discussion with someone who hadn't lived through that to kind of understand what their thought process is now, as opposed to ours, which is pretty hard cased from a different era of security. I am really glad you made that point because I really think that if you took today's developer or, you know, college students today and you explain to them what the security space looked like when we were coming into it, they wouldn't believe you. You know, like imagine you had to explain to someone, yeah, there was this database that was used by the majority of planet Earth. Um, and when vulnerabilities were discovered in it, they threatened to sue the researcher and took them to court. People would find that hard to believe. They would say, why would they do that? That doesn't make sense. No one would do that. He was doing them a favor or she was doing them a favor. But the reality is that is how the security space was at one point. You know, it's, 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 it's nonsensical now. You think about it and logically it doesn't make sense. But you've got to understand 10 or 15 years ago, vendors were sometimes of the mindset that these issues should never be public, that the users didn't deserve to know, and that they were working on the issue, and that the new version would fix it, and as long as no one said anything, no one would know anything. You know, it was literally, I mean, what did we call it? Security through obscurity. And that was, you know, that was thought by some people in the industry to be sufficient. And you and you actually you actually tweeted something about this earlier this week. I don't know if you remember. Um, <laughs> it's not been about, that bad a week. Uh, <laughs> talking it's about Tuesday. Um, it is it is for me. It feels like it's been a long week. Um, um, I got I got John the editor all of my all, everything about that stuff. Um, you had tweeted <laughs> that Microsoft doesn't get sufficient credit for yeah. the amount of work they've done, and really in terms of leadership, like without. Bill Gates is like there's so like for those who don't know there was a a material shift at Microsoft where Bill Gates sent out this famous email about this this is a security issue is something we have to address and this is how we're going to do it and there was an entire continental like shift of approach and out of that series of events came the security development life cycle and how to manage a, a patch program and how to handle vulnerability disclosures. And like all of that was pioneered largely out of fights <laughs> between Microsoft and the security community over the course of about 12, 15 years. So when, we, when we're looking at tools like uh, Canvas, like Metasploit, like all the other, uh, you know, 
red uh, red teamer tools, pen testing tools, offensive security platforms, whatever you however you'd like to refer to them. <laughs> GitHub. <laughs> GitHub. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe maybe a good final question on that would be like have the presence of these tools and the presence of uh, a, a better newer way of doing things uh, you know in, in the most more recent ten years fifteen years uh, has that actually led to better outcomes I mean are are things going to be safer and better hundred percent yeah it's it's gotten a lot better I mean if we look at just I mean to, to touch back on uh, the Microsoft point right. Microsoft's idea of having a product security baseline is something that I think every major vendor has adopted. You know, uh, it's not to say people don't make mistakes. It's not to say it's a solved problem, but it's on the radar. People have established a list of mistakes they don't want to make anymore. And I think, generally speaking, almost every single vendor has improved their posture as a result. Now, that doesn't mean the issue's solved. We've got to stay on top of it, but it does mean it's getting better. Um, the last thing I wanted to say, and this kind of goes back to the old security mantra, for defenders out there, trust but verify. You know, you should know what's on your network, but assume there's some things on there that are rogue, because there are, and use a scanner to verify that what you think is out there is what's out there. It's the only way uh-huh. to know. I'd say that that as a vendor, speaking as a vendor, because this is a vendor, I would say don't trust vendors. Right. And, and just having been in the security community and having, having dealt with um, f- um, vulnerability disclosures and breaches and everything else, if, if a human being thinks they can get away with something w- by lying and half-assing it and that they'll still get the reward or they'll avoid the punishment that's associated with it, nine times out of ten, they will do it. Like, you cannot trust... If your job is to ensure that something is safe, that you're protecting the people that work for your company, that the customers that are part of your company, if your job is to, on their behalf, be the defender for them and make sure that they get a paycheck every day, the product rolls out, the money comes in, and it all works well, then you can't just take vendors at their word because we've seen vendors lie. We've seen vendors make mistakes. And so without things like Metasploit that will take an exploit and then turn it inside out and make it work a little differently to challenge the the snort engine to make sure that it's properly reassembling packets, you can't be sure. You, you are not an expert enough to know to validate that. And so I would say these tools have had an enormous positive benefit in terms of security. They have held vendors to account. They have shown in no uncertain terms to doubtful defenders exactly what was possible. Um, and if you think that that's not still a problem, attend any red team readout ever, and watch the <laughs> defensiveness and watch the defensiveness come to the front uh, as as you call people's babies ugly. It, it is it'll happen immediately. <laughs> no, it's, that's true. I, I I'm sure Matt and, and I know myself could tell stories about, um, you know, ten years ago or so, maybe even longer than that of. Um, using different modules of Metasploit against Snort itself and us having to rewrite large portions of the Snort engine to deal with 
you know, different obfuscations that were present in Metasploit. And, and, like, and by us, know, he means Sourcefire, not me and Joel. Me and Joel did not rewrite portions of the Snort engine. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I, no, I would say, no, but I would say, Matt, I would say that you were extremely instrumental in that, in that you filed most of the bugs. So <laughs> I did, I did at one point for the, for the person who was in charge of handling the HTTP engine bugs, I actually bought yeah. her a plant as an apology because I was just nonstop opening bugs. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I mean, there's there's a whole you know that's a whole like over a beer story that could be told there. But I mean, it's, yeah, maybe we but, should start yeah, a podcast we, around that sometime and, uh, and like like, no, like terrible all idea. beers or something. <laughs> no, no, and tell Seems stories. Like a bad idea. Way too much work. <laughs> I, I want to switch gears a little bit because before we go today, we've been we've been working for a while now on uh, a big piece of of research around election security. And Matt, your team has taken the lead on that. You've personally taken the lead on that uh, and and been hard at work for the better part of the last four years, getting a better grip and understanding around what election security means um, and, and how elections actually work and how they can be best secured in the U.S. and abroad uh, across many states and, and done a lot of work there. Can you kind of give us a, a quick intro to the white paper that we just dropped uh, and you also have a talk coming up on the same topic at Black Hat this year. But it's it's basically it's two things. One is it's sort of a of a report in that this is what Talos learned over the last four years, um, and and we have a very specific view. We're not we are not elections experts. We've never run elections. We never had had the the responsibility to ensure that elections were were held safely and with with integrity, um, but we are security experts, and we do have a great deal of experience with the actors um, and adversaries that that we're talking about when we talk about election security. And so, uh, it's it's essentially how that group of people group of people with that viewpoint when they encountered elections, what they took away from that experience. And uh, I'll, tell a, I'll tell a quick story. I've told you this this one, um, but uh, Mitch, but uh, I was in the deep south uh, with, with the team. So when the way that we would normally do this is we would go to the, the uh, Secretary of State's office um, with a team of, of four to six people. And I always tried to bring people that I thought um, would would kind of improve the conversation or bring kind of a unique viewpoint. And this was our second visit uh, to this to this to this office, and I had brought uh, a guy from my team named Oleg, and Oleg is from Ukraine. Oleg's got a great deal of experience with with certain set of adversaries, um, and Oleg's also got a lot of experience with the election security in um, in Ukraine. And so I thought it would be interesting to share that kind of perspective. Uh, with with the Secretary of State's office, and so uh, what I didn't expect was that I was also sharing the perspective of American elections with Oleg. And so we're leaving, we're done for the day, um, and we're in the elevator, and and oh, and it's just just us, just the team, um, customers back in their office. And Oleg's like, is turns to me, and goes, so so this is this is really how you do it, and I'm like, yep. That's that's American democracy. That's that's how it works. And he goes, "That's insane." <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and and to be clear, what he was reacting to was the lack 
of central authority or capability to affect the security landscape. Um, and so um, there, every in, in the United States, counties run elections, like local precincts, um, tribes and territories run elections. Um, the Secretary of State's office in a lot of counties holds very little power. Um, right. They, it's pushed yeah. down to the lowest level. So, yeah. but, so what we have is we have this kind of upside down pyramid where the federal government has all this capability and all these resources and all this money and all this personnel, but they're not really the target here. It's the counties, and the tar- counties have almost no personnel and no resources and no access to intelligence and no access to expertise, depending on your county. Like, And completely responsible for all of to it. To be clear, yeah. L.A. County is bigger than like 12 states, but like yeah. on average, <laughs> yeah. on average. Um, you still have to take a perspective. Like there, there, this, 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 this state that I was at, there were counties that didn't even have websites. Like you couldn't go to a website and learn about some of these counties. Um, so My town has a website. I mean, come on. <laughs> Granted, it's the GeoCity site that Joel set up when he was mayor. But <laughs> it's just a check-in, whatever that check-in thing is. That's right. For, for, for yeah. Ultimately, <laughs> a lot of the fights that that could potentially that you could kind of envision are state-sponsored actors, part of you know a country's security intelligence apparatus at the top level of their game, having hit countries across the planet. Um, going against, you know, Howard County, Maryland, right? And that's doesn't matter how that that Howard County actually is a pretty um, a pretty well funded part of the a part of the nation. That's not a fair fight. Um, and Howard County and, and local local administrators everywhere have hold that power, and 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 right. there's a tension between local and the state and the state and the federal. And and if you don't believe that, I'll remind you that in 2016, the state of Georgia accused the Department of Homeland Security of hacking their election infrastructure. So there yeah. is tension between the federals and the state and the state and the local. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the paper kind of outlines some of, some of the conclusions, some of the things that we've seen, um, how we would recommend you as security practitioner engage with this dynamic patriotic, hardworking community, um, and hopefully without, you know, stumbling over making some of the missteps that, that we had to learn, you know, for ourselves. I think one of the things I find most interesting that's in the paper, now, when we when we talk a lot about election security or when we talk see election security events, like there, there's always been like the, the voting village at DEF CON. Well, there hasn't always been. For the last couple of years, there's been the voting village at DEF CON. Uh, there's been election security events to go on, and a lot of this focuses on, and and maybe uh, maybe it's not just because of that, but just most people's experience with election security and elections revolves around the machine. It's just a voting mm-hmm. machine issue. It's it's yeah. something that's what they consider it is just like well we got to keep the machines secure, we got to have the paper backups, we got to make sure they're not connected to the internet, and those things are all very very true. But the the ecosystem. Um, even setting aside for a second the the upside down pyramid that you just described, the ecosystem is a lot more complicated than what kind of machine your county is using. Yeah, I mean the ecosystem is is the 
the there's there's a strangeness to the market. You know, vendors are critical to to running this country's elections. And you know, there was a period between 2010 and 2018 where where the federal government provided no money to the states in terms of HABA funding. Um, so there's these huge kind of like you know binge cycles where where they have money to spend, and then there's these periods of barrenness where they don't have money. And it's just not a healthy way to 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 do development like. A, you know, Joel, your development mm-hmm. manager, can you imagine like you have a staff of 20 and now you have a staff of four and you're still having to like patch and maintain all this stuff that you built? It's, it's insane. No, but, but you're going to have a staff of 60 <laughs> next year, but they're only going to yeah. be there for one year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, you know, the worst. Or, but maybe they will. Maybe you will. You know, it's it's that kind of uncertainty. There's all kinds of strangeness to this, um, to this piece. And I think ultimately the strangest thing about it is and 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 the oh, the warning that we open with that that I continue to say is very important is that don't mistake this for enterprise security this isn't you know the shuttling goods and money around this is how america distributes power and if you ever forget that while you're doing this work you're going to find yourself in in some really weird places so that's the kind of thing that you need to keep in the front of your mind of of what it is you're dealing with well, and the inverse has problems too. Like you're talking about the upside down pyramid, right? Like the inverse has problems too, where like the central government controls all elections all the way down. Yep. I'm not, and I'm not saying like I know. No, and don't you know, don't get me wrong. That wasn't I uh, wasn't right. advocating that that yeah, you know, no, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. for for a massive change. Yeah, not advocating it, for a single point of failure either. Yeah, no. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. Like I don't know. I I don't think Matt or I or any like and I'm not an election security. I've you know been part of elections, but I'm not like a security expert on them. But it's 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 I don't think there's I don't, I don't know if the right answer's been found yet. Right? Like the you know there's certainly problems for either end of that scale, whether it's you know the 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 largest organization controlling everything, or the smallest organization controlling everything. And this, I, you know, it's, it it's served us well for more than two hundred years, and it wasn't until we invented the internet and started putting things on right. online that maybe online. shouldn't have been online, and then decided to pick fights with the world, and then are shocked when the world kind of pushes back. That it suddenly pushes back. Yeah, yeah when suddenly you're like, oh, you know, maybe maybe this this whole setup has a disadvantage. Um, but but I think I think you know it certainly has played out well before that. Well, and we we say we've pointed out so many differences between the the election security side and cybersecurity and and trying to get and and really I think the crux of this paper is trying to start a common conversation between those two sides. But one thing I've noticed, and, and tell me I'm wrong and shoot me down, Matt, but the, uh, the thing I've noticed is that the biggest problem is still the same on both sides, the, the, the weakness is people. Especially given our statement about what our adversaries are trying to do, and which we haven't covered, but we've covered this before in, in the podcast, but essentially our statement continues to be that the adversaries are, are not attacking elections per se, but are attacking democracy as a concept. They're trying to, yes. to yes. wreck the faith of the electorate in the institutions that distribute power. Um, and it is a right. conscious effort on their parts to do that. And ultimately, um, to some extent, the madness that you see in 2020 is partially a result of those activities um, and, and, and kind of attacking the fractures inside of American society. And so to that extent, I would say, yeah, people are the weakest link because you can't patch people. And ultimately when you're going after faith and when you're going after belief and when you're going after confidence, 
you're ultimately not going after a machine. You're going after humans. And they're easy. They're easy. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think that's, I think that's the, the, the point that is being missed about election security as a whole, I think, is that people believe that you know, country A or country B is hacking the voting machine, and that's not what's going on. They're you know, spreading different disinformation campaigns through Facebook and Twitter and forcing you to question your, your beliefs or question other people and th- you know, and forcing a, forcing a vote in, in a certain. And that's why I'm super glad this paper's coming out because I don't think the average American understands how elections are influenced or even knows, you know, what that would entail. Maybe we should just call this episode. It's not about changing the vote. Let's get that out of the way now. and i will say in 2020 like to to a person the people that i talk to in the election community from the counties and the cities and the townships on up into the federal government they they get this like there's nothing there's nothing i say in this paper that it's going to be a single surprise to the election community they they understand their community and they have taken the last four years to to absorb the pieces of security they need to to start that journey to to making a, mis, a more secure election environment and and while there's still miles to go we're in a much better place in 2020 than we were in 2016 no doubt but i, I want to give you guys a chance uh go back around the table get a closing thought parting shot from everybody and somehow this week's WebEx, nobody changed positions. So we're actually going to be in the same order as we started off. Craig, that puts you up first. You know, I, I just would say um, anytime no, you're Tell dealing- us about the waterfall in your driveway. That's all I really want to hear about. Oh, it's it's apparently, <laughs> apparently over. You know, I, I got to go back and fill up the pool at this point. Um, but from a security perspective, I think we can't put enough em- uh, emphasis on the whole idea of trust but verify you know, we've all seen it in movies and we all think it's like really funny and just a tagline. But as a defender, you know, your users are probably not going to intentionally do something wrong, but they may end up trying to work around a problem and that may end up with you getting bad data. And they certainly will plug in devices that you're not aware of just to try and do their job. So it's always important that you keep that in mind and that you look on your network for those things and then address those challenges as you find them. Joel. Closing thought, parting shot, buddy. I uh, I ordered a uh, Xbox Elite Series Two controller for my Xbox, and uh, Amazon lost it for a month. Oh Jesus! Oh. And so they they were like, "My bad, we'll send you another one." And I was like, "Cool!" And uh, and yesterday, both of them showed up. So I now have two. <laughs> Xbox <laughs> Series controllers for the price of one. So thank you, Amazon. So are those back in stock places now? I don't know. All I know is that it took like three weeks for me to get it. If they're not, uh, I'd say if the they're not, I'll one. buy that other one off of you. <laughs> I've been trying uh, to get a hold of one of those for a minute. <laughs> Matt, closing thought, parting shot, buddy. Um, Willie Nelson's got a new album out. I saw that. <laughs> I listened to it already. Yeah. Upon your recommendation this morning, I put it on. Yeah, uh, Willie Nelson's new album is First Rose of Spring. Um, mm-hmm. And the title track is really good. I also liked uh, Love Just Laughed, uh, which is the mm-hmm. penultimate track. Um, but yeah, 87 years old, still doing it. Willie Nelson, Ooh. good job. Yep. 
Well, I want to thank you all for joining us today and join us again in a couple weeks uh, for episode 89. But in the meantime, check out the election security white paper that Matt has authored. The link to that will be available in the show notes. And if you're going to Black Hat, the virtual event, make sure to check out Matt's session there. As we would all normally be in Vegas for Nerd Summer Camp at this time, but we'll all be doing that from the comfort of our own homes behind computer screens this year. But join us again in a couple weeks for episode 89, and we will see you then. But until next time, cheers. Cheers.